gospel lesson is found in John 14. I'll be reading the first 14 verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go, I, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, it, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do come to you this morning through your son Jesus and ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful and mysterious things in this portion of your scriptures in John's gospel. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, before we went to seminary, I worked with high schoolers at First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia. And at the beginning of each summer, the first week of the summer, we would take about 50 to 60 students to the beach for a whole week. So my last summer, we climbed into five 15-passenger vans and we caravaned our way from Augusta, Georgia to the coast of South Carolina. And we were having a great time. We listened to music. That's when we still had CDs and we would plug them in. Y'all remember what those are? We told jokes, we laughed, we celebrated. We were generally enjoying the excitement of a full week at the beach. But more than that, we anticipated a full summer. A week at the beach, a few mission trips, one to Peru, pool parties, youth group, and Taco Tuesdays. All that anticipation, all of that excitement in, all of, in each of these five vans, it became troublingly uncertain when we saw black smoke and sparks billowing from the van in the middle of our caravan. You see, both rear tires on that van had exploded. Now, by God's grace, the woman driving the van was able to get a hold of it and hold onto the steering wheel and safely get it to the median. She did a splendid job. 
Unfortunately, one of the interns pulled into the median right behind her. So we had three vans safely on the shoulder and then two vans safely in the median, both full of students, but only one capable of driving. So I got out of the van that I was driving. I immediately assessed the situation and in my anxiety, I began barking orders. You go here, you go there, you stay right there. Barking orders at students and staff. After I finally calmed down and after a brief powwow with the staff, we, we decided to pack all the students up into four vans, take them to the next truck stop, while me and another staff member stayed behind to wait for AAA. So AAA arrived, they helped us put Two, uh, two new tires on the back of this van, so we thought we were good. We got in, we cranked it up, and we were on our happy way to join the rest of the group. Unfortunately, we didn't make it very far before we realized that we were actually in deeper trouble. See, we went to hit the, hit the brakes, and nothing happened. You ever felt that? Like the fear, the uncertainty, the anxiety welling up inside of you in that moment? hit the brakes and nothing happened. And again, by God's grace, we were able to get to the next exit to some semblance of safety by pumping the emergency brake and releasing it over and over and over. Now that day, I was confronted with the uncertainty of the world, the unreliability of even a van. Everything around me was unreliable, including myself, including myself. What was once an exciting trip was now troublingly uncertain. What was going to happen next? What shoe was going to drop? And what was once an exciting trip for the disciples, following Jesus, seeing him do wonders and signs, was growing more and more uncertain as Jesus spoke. He told them that one of them was going to betray him. And then they saw Judas stand up and walk out the door. Their friend, they had spent three years with him. And then they hear of Jesus' morbid, imminent departure into death. And if that weren't bad enough, he looks at Peter after Peter's defiant declaration of commitment. He looks at Peter and he says, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Y'all, we we might be able to understand Judas, right? He's been kind of weaselly from the beginning. But Peter? Peter's supposed to be the strong one. He's supposed to be the one that we all look to, the, the, the reliable one. If he can't hack it, what hope is there for any of us? And maybe you're asking that same question this morning. What hope is there? Everything in your, in your life seems uncertain, maybe unreliable, and you're troubled. You know, Jesus doesn't diminish that reality. He actually acknowledges it. It recognizes that a wor- the world is uncertain. And it does cause you trouble. And those things are heavy. They are hard burdens to bear under. And he sees it in his disciples So he tells you this morning, here and now, what he told them then and there. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. 
or believe in God, believe also in me. And he's going to give you four promises that entice your faith. Four promises we're going to look at this morning. First, in verses 2 and 3, he promises you a place to belong. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Many of us grew up looking at these verses and we pictured heaven in our minds, right, as a mansion in the clouds. Kind of like Jack in the, climbing the beanstalk as he crests the top, he sees this giant castle. The only thing different this time is that there's a golden gate where Jesus welcomes you into heaven, into his mansion, into his father's house. He shows you to your room, tells you that dinner's at seven, and to put on the white robe that's hanging in the closet. I don't know about you, but that seems a bit too mediocre for the God who spoke the universe into existence. Just a little too mediocre. Fortunately, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus said he's going to the Father to prepare a place for us. What he means there is that he's going to heaven, to the right hand of God, to prepare our inheritance so that when he comes again, he will take us to himself. And the, in the inheritance that he has prepared for us, the Father's house, will be where God dwells with his people forever. God making his dwelling place among us. Coming to live with us. So rather than picturing a big house in the sky, we ought to picture a grand piece of property, an estate that encompasses the entire earth. It's, it's more of a, of, of a recreated world than just a mansion. But more than just pointing to a place, he's pointing to what that place represents. He says that he will take us to himself, that where he is, we may be also. So when you think of home, when you think of home, do you just think of the structure and the paint colors, and the furniture that was there. No. You think of the people. You think of the memories. You think of sitting around dinner table laughing. You, sit, you think of Christmas. You think of the things that that place represents. So when Jesus says that he's going to prepare a place for you to belong, that place is a home where you belong with God and with God's people forever. Not a mansion in the sky, but Jesus coming to live with us in a place that he has prepared for us. So when you're troubled and you are uncertain of where you fit in this world, Jesus invites you to trust him. Trust him because he promises you a place to belong, a place that you can call yours with God, with Jesus forever. You belong there, and he promises it to you. And then second in verses four to six, he promises you a path to walk down. After promising them a place to belong, he says to his disciples, you know the way. But doubting Thomas, oh, we love doubting Thomas, right? He asks all the questions that we want to ask, but are afraid to ask. 
He says, how, how can we know the way? How? We, d- we don't know where you're going. So if we don't know where you're going, how do we know the way? And Jesus responds with perhaps the most famous statement of ex- exclusivity in the Gospels. I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wow. Jesus doesn't say that he provides a path. He doesn't even say that he guides you down the path. But he says rather that he himself, in his person, his godness and his manness, he is the path. And it's precisely because he is the truth of God and because he shares the life of God that he can be the path to God. He's not some abstract belief system and he's not some obscure historical figure 2,000 years ago. He's the second person of the Trinity. The son of God who entered into history, took on flesh gave himself for the sins of the world on the cross and got out of the grave for you. So he is the path. But that claim to exclusivity, it's not really appealing in the world that we live in because we like to keep our options open. We like to have a buffet of options to God. Just be a good person. Go to church more often than you don't. Support this or that missionary. Invest in this or that social cause. Vote for this or that candidate. So on and so forth. But Jesus makes the exclusive claim here. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no, you don't get to God unless you walk through me. So when you feel lost, when you feel that there is no certainty, There is one exclusive claim. Believe in Jesus and you you will walk that certain and that sure path. He is the way, the only way to God. And that path is leading somewhere. It ultimately leads to God. So he offers you a third promise. He promises a personal connection to the Father. Look with me at verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you would... You would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him. And you've seen him. And again, a confused Philip this time responds with, Lord, show us the father and it will be enough for us. Just show us the father and it's enough. Isn't that the longing of all our hearts? We cry with Philip, show us the father and it's enough I long for a personal connection with something or someone more beautiful, more powerful, more sacred than myself. But unlike Philip, instead of asking Jesus, show us the Father, and listening to his answer, we search for that hallowed ground of connection with the divine in all the wrong places. Money, sensuality, authority, power, even family always searching, always clawing for God where only a shadow of him exists. But you see, our deepest longing as those who live east of Eden is to actually go back west, 
to go back to that garden sanctuary to walk with God. And Jesus says, you can have that. You can have that. But you don't have to travel west. Stop looking in the shadows. Jesus responds to Philip saying, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So Jesus inextricably links himself with the Father, so much so that his words are Jesus' words. That his words are the Father's words. And his works are actually the Father's works. We do not know God outside of Jesus, but rather where Jesus is present, God is present. So we get to God through Jesus because he's the path, but we also know God as we know Jesus. He is the connection point. He is the, the crux the core of God's self-revelation to you and to me. So brothers and sisters, he invites you to believe. He says, believe. Believe in me. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. If you don't believe because of his words, at least believe because of the things you have seen him do. Because of his works. And just as the disciples were facing uncertainty, even in their human relationships, Jesus invites you and me to trust him. Because it's through trusting Jesus that we receive that promised connection, personal connection to the Father. And then lastly, in verses 12 to 14, he promises power through prayer. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This seems ridiculous, right? This seems a profound audacious claim of Jesus that we would do greater works than him. Right? He turned water into wine. Which one of us can do that? He fed 5,000 people. Y'all with enough smokers and enough meat? I could feed 5,000 people, but I cannot spontaneously generate food. He walked on water. He raised a dead man out of the grave, his friend Lazarus. And let's not forget that he took the sins of the world onto himself on the cross, died, and got out of the grave by himself. And he still says, greater works. Greater works than these will he do. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Here he links the greater works of the church with the intercessory work of prayer. So what Jesus is promising is that when you pray, when we pray for the glory of God 
and the purposes of God to fill the earth, then he will do it. One commentator said, that, said it this way, the glorifying of the Father in the mission of the church will be the fruit of intercession offered by the church in the name of Jesus. Think about it this way. It's not a qualitative work. We're not doing better work than Jesus. None of us can do those things. But it's a quantitative work. Jesus' work on Calvary is extended to the entire world through the prayer-filled mission of the church. Jesus was left with, a with 11 disciples and about 120 followers in Acts 1. And then in Acts 2, 3,000 were added. And it says day by day were added to their number, number those who believed. And now the gospel has spread to the ends of the earth. And over 2,000, 2, 2, 2 billion people claim the name of Jesus Christ. So we participate in the power of God through prayer, extending the glory of God around the world, which is why the first thing we pray for in our intercessions these Sundays is for God to fill the world with, the, with his glory. We pray for local ministry partners and global missionaries. And by praying for the glory of God and the purpose of extending the gospel to the world, we plug ourselves into the power source of life itself. So when you face the powerlessness of uncertainty, Jesus invites you to believe. He invites you to plug yourself into the power source of life through prayer. Not to get what you want, but to work for what he wants. Namely, the glory of God and the good of the world. And so he promises power through prayer. Let's go back to the beginning. I told you a story of a bunch of students and myself and vans and black smoke and sparks. Now, we were able to find a replacement van and everything was fine. Truly, everything was fine. Everybody was safe. The beach trip was incredible. Truly incredible. The summer went off without a hitch. It was awesome. In fact, one of the most memorable moments of that summer was in a small town called Kiabamba outside of Cusco, Peru. One of those students who was on that beach trip, God gave the grace of leading a young kid to faith in Jesus. And we celebrated and we cried and we laughed. It was an incredible summer, but it was at the beginning of that summer in the troubling uncertainty of a busted van that Jesus invited me, he invited our staff, he even invited our students to trust him. And he invites you and me to trust him once again this morning. And in trusting, he promises a place he promises to be the path that you walk down by faith. A path that leads to personal connection with the Father. And he promises power through prayer. That he will extend the glory of God around the world. Let's ask him for his help to trust him. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that you sent your son Jesus into this world. That you made him the way, that you made him the life, the truth, that you made him the life. And that you have offered each one of us 
a connection to yourself through him. We ask that you would give us help to believe. We do believe, but even help us in our unbelief. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.